case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 91-1353, Thomas F. Conroy v. Walter Anaskoff. The spectators are admonished to remain silent until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Klonoff, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Section 525 of the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act excludes a service member's period of military service from any period provided by law for the redemption of real property forfeited for nonpayment of real estate taxes. The issue here is whether a service member must show hardship in order to invoke Section 525. We submit that the courts below, in imposing such a requirement, violated this Court's case law and statutory interpretation for three reasons. First, Section 525, by its plain language, imposes no hardship requirement. Second, several other sections of the statute do impose a hardship requirement, while other sections, like Section 525, do not. This confirms that Congress acted deliberately when it did not impose a hardship requirement under Section 525. Third, this Court has made clear that statutes providing benefits to service members should be liberally construed. For these reasons, we submit that this Court should enforce the statute as written and decline respondents' invitation to rewrite the statute on policy grounds. The facts in this case are simple, and I will spend just a moment on them. At the time of trial, Colonel Conroy had been on continuous active duty in the U.S. Army since 1966. He purchased the property at issue in May 1973 and paid all real estate taxes between 1973 and 1983. He did not pay his taxes in 84 through 86, having received no tax notices from the town. The town of Danforth seized his land under Maine law and sold it in two parcels to respondents Aniskoff and H.C. Haynes in December 1986. Upon learning of the sale, Colonel Conroy acted promptly in asserting his rights. When Aniskoff and Haynes refused to give up the land, Colonel Conroy brought quiet title actions based on Section 525. The trial court held that despite Section 525's clear language, a service member had to show hardship for military service, which Colonel Conroy did not do. The Supreme Judicial Court of Maine affirmed the Superior Court by an equally divided vote and did not express any reasoning. We submit that this case should be controlled by this Court's decision last term in King v. St. Vincent's Hospital. At issue in King was a National Guard member who sought a three-year leave of absence from his hospital employer 
to join the Active Guard Reserve Program as a command sergeant major. He claimed that under the plain language of the Veteran Reemployment Rights Act, he was allowed to return to his job with the same seniority, pay, and vacation as if he had not left. The hospital denied the leave request on the ground that the period requested was unreasonable. Although the statutory language contained no limits for leave requests, the lower courts, both the 11th Circuit and the District Court, imposed a reasonable requirement, reasonableness requirement because of their concern about the burdens placed on employers of allowing employees to return after long leaves of absences. This court unanimously reversed, uh, Justice Thomas did not participate, uh, because really for the same reasons that I'm urging here. Number one, the language of the section at issue was clear. Two, other parts of the statute, by contrast, explicitly imposed time limits. And three, the statute provided benefits to members of the armed services. The court acknowledged that the statute was harsh, but refused to rewrite the law and noted that that was Congress's job. Here, we have an identical situation. The language of Section 525 is absolutely clear, and there's been no claim, as far as I know, in any case that there's an ambiguity uh, in Section 525. Under this court's case law, we submit that the clear language of the statute uh, should be the end of the matter. However, it is even clearer than just the language of Section 525 alone, uh, since a review of the statute indicates that several other sections unlike Section 525, impose a hardship requirement explicitly. And we've cited uh, numerous examples <clears throat> on page 12, footnotes 11 and 12 of our opening brief. Uh, we have also cited a number of examples of other parts of the statute that, like Section 525, contain no prejudice requirement. Uh, so it seems to me quite clear uh, that the statute was very carefully drafted and that when Congress wanted to impose a hardship requirement, it did so explicitly. And we point, for example, Section 560, which is a particular interest, since right within the same uh, section, you've got juxtapositions of a hardship and no hardship uh, standard. Mr. Klonoff, the, the statute really doesn't say that any, that any property sold in violation of the federal prohibition is not effectively sold, does it? Is, is, is that a matter of state law? I mean, could, could, Maine, could Maine law say that uh, if this statute is violated and we goof and, and uh, make the sale within the 18-month period, a good-faith purchaser nonetheless has title, and, and maybe you have a cause of action against Maine but not against the BFP? I don't think that the state could do that. They could override the, the statute. There are a variety of causes of action. Well, they're not overriding the statute. The statute doesn't really say that the, that the transfer shall be ineffective, does it? Well, it has that effect. Uh, well, if you say so, but, <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm asking. Why does it have that effect? It doesn't say that it has that effect. It just says, you know, that you, you have to give them more time. Okay, I haven't. You got me. I, I broke the law, so sue me. I mean, maybe he has a cause of action against the state of Maine, if, if, if that's what Maine says. But the whole concept of a redemption is, is the right to actually, if title is passed, the right to take back title. In Maine, the way the law is constructed is... Title doesn't even pass until the end of the redemption period. You're, you're saying that Maine does not have the authority to give title until that period is passed, and because it is told Maine, therefore, can never give even, even uh, cannot even give a, a good title subject to defeasance later. 
not inconsistent with the statute. We read the statute as, as allowing the serviceman, if title is transferred and there's a period of redemption, uh, to take the title back. I suppose what the what could be done, since it talks about uh, any period of redemption provided by law, is, I suppose, to not have any redemption period in this situation. No, but I, I, I just want to make sure that I understood what you were saying to Justice Scalia, and I, I thought your, the theory that you were espousing was that because the period of service is not included, uh, cannot be included in computing the, the redemption period, but the redemption period never runs because it never runs. Maine or the town, whatever it is, never acquires the authority to give any title at all. Isn't that your theory? Well, that's right. But in some states, yeah. the title actually uh, will pass subject to the redemption. If there's a redemption statute, the way it works uh, is that the title would be returned. But that's not the way it works on your view in Maine, is it? No, that's right. In Maine, it doesn't work that way. Um, so, as we indicated, uh, these sections in the juxtaposition in 560 makes clear uh, that Congress knew how to pose a hardship requirement and wanted to do so. And finally, uh, as I indicated, uh, this Court has made clear in a number of cases that uh, statutes of this sort must be liberally construed in favor of the serviceman. The Court below, the trial court, uh, did not make a textual argument, but instead expressed concerns about the possible impact of purchasers of property. Uh, service members are allowed to come in years later to redeem their property. Uh, but as in King, we submit that any such concerns are for Congress and not for the court. We think that in this case, the lower court misunderstood its role, uh, believing that if a statute was harsh, a court could ignore the plain language. But under this court's case law, a court is almost never permitted to ignore the plain language on policy grounds, and certainly not for the reasons offered below. This court has made clear that uh, the statute uh, literally read must be patently absurd uh, with consequences so bizarre that Congress could not have intended them. Uh, and it's been phrased in a number of different ways. In the Crooks case from 1930, which has been cited in Griffin and TVA versus Hill has made clear that it's not enough that it's merely absurd uh, and that oftentimes laws have effects that weren't contemplated, but that it's for Congress uh, to decide the issue. And this court, in a number of cases, Griffin has said that harsh consequences are not enough, a situation where a seaman was entitled to receive over $300,000 from an employer uh, because of a $412 withholding of wages, the TVA versus Hill, which involved a multi-million dollar dam project, uh, which was stopped near completion. Uh, the court said that the result was curious, but not enough to override, uh, and numerous other cases uh, that this court, and this court has made clear in, in a state of cower uh, that even if a statute could be characterized as stark or troubling, uh, it is the duty to, of the court to enforce Congress's language, even if the court questions its wisdom. Now, looking at Section 525 and actually juxtaposing 525 uh, with the situation at King, we would submit that there's not even an absurdity, let alone a situation that's so patently absurd that Congress could not have intended it. In King, for example, it's interesting to note that the three-year period uh, was not the end of the uh, possibility in that situation. There was a question asked at page 6 of the uh, oral argument uh, in that case in the transcript about whether or not the period could be renewed four times for, say, 12 years. Uh, and the answer that the assistant to the Solicitor General gave was that theoretically that's possible. She didn't know of a case, but theoretically it was possible. Um, and 
the, uh, the situation then you'd have in King was somebody coming back 12 years, and, and basically, in, and in King, for example, the, the individuals reflected in the 11th Circuit opinion was the manager of, of security, could come in 12 years later and just walk in and demand his job back after somebody had been hired and so forth. Uh, and so, really, that is or could be a harsh and troubling situation, but it was not enough. And in fact, the court, although the 11th Circuit resolved the case uh, as a matter of absurd consequences, this court in King didn't even address the absurd consequences at all and just said that the matter was for Congress to consider. Uh, May I ask you a question about this, this case, just so I get it fixed in my mind? If you win, the, what it means is the period of redemption has not yet expired. That's right. And therefore, your client has a right to redeem. And I gather your position is he, has, he will retain that right to rede- redeem as long as he remains in on active duty? Well, he's, he's actually uh, now retired, although well, he's not retired. Then, then he just has the right to redeem as of now. So he, he could be compelled to exercise it within a fixed period of time, could he? That's correct. I, I think pursuant to the stipulation that was we set out in our brief and that's set out in the opinion. I don't believe there's any issue in terms of either side complying with state law, but formally in this situation you would make a tender. Uh, and you would have to make a tender of the back taxes plus interest, whatever the statute provides for, rede- for exactly redemption. Right. If you had a person, you don't, as I understand, who was still on active duty and he's perhaps going to serve another 15, 20 years, would he have the right under the statute, under your view, to say to the property owner, uh, I haven't decided what I want to do. I just want to make it clear that the period of redemption hasn't run yet, and I'm, I'll make up my mind just before I get out of service. He would have that right, and I think then the property owner would have civil causes of action available, and, and that would be true, by the way, to the taxing authority. They could sue for damages. They could levy. They could sue the, for the back taxes. I exactly, levy taxes. Let, let me just say, though, you're, you're positing, I think, a situation uh, in which somebody would really have an incentive to want to stretch the period of redemption out. And that, that's what the lower court was talking about, posing the, the situation of somebody waiting 30 years. And well, I not. suppose there's a practical matter is he might well be willing to sell the property for some. He might well be willing to sell his right in the redemption period for a cash sum. These things often settle out for uh, that, cash basis. That's correct. And the, and the longer the period and the more of a nuisance rights he has, the better bargaining position he is in in that negotiation. Well, that's correct. But l- let me provide, if I could, some... Uh, some perspective on that because really what we're talking about and the assumption I think of the so-called absurd consequences is the idea of a service member uh, who has a valid and just debt just really out of reasons for dishonesty not paying off the debt and trying to to uh, abuse if you will the rights that are provided um, we don't think as a practical matter this is going to arise there are a whole array of, of remedies available to the, that the military has. For example, Article 134, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. The Army has regulations. At, at what, does our, what does Article 134 provide that's relevant to this case? Well, what it provides is that uh, an individual can be court-martialed for conduct of a nature that would bring discredit upon the armed forces. And there are a number of cases, such as United States versus uh, Savinovich, uh, in the U- U.S. Army Court of Military Review, 1988, applying that precisely does, does to the bad debt situation. Does it bring discredit on the United and the Armed Forces to uh, exercise rights granted by Congress to a, an officer of the United States Army? That's what the court has held. If, if, if there is a, a just debt, let me go further, though, than just the Article 134. The U.S. Army 
uh, has specific regulations at Part 513 of 32 CFR, which says that if a soldier is not trying to resolve unpaid debts promptly or, there com or complaints of the sort are, re are received, uh, punitive measures can be provided, such as a denial of reenlistment, administrative separation from the service, uh, or other sorts of punishments. So those, those may well deal with individual cases, uh, Mr. Klonoff, but if, if we're now turning to the, the bad consequences of uh, adopting the, the position you say the statute requires here, uh, I, th I think perhaps from the point of view of the state or the town, uh, it's simply an inability to uh, sell uh, at a tax sale. The, well, the titles simply are, are too, too uncertain. Well, we would respectfully disagree that that's the outcome. Uh, even if there were a prejudice requirement, you'd still have an issue about military service. There are all kinds of reasons why uh, there might later be a cloud on title, such as a fraudulent deed, uh, ineffective notice, or failure to comply with the requirements of a tax sale. Many states have requirements that uh, there's a redemption period for a period of mental incompetence. And what is done in these tax sales traditionally, and what was done in this case, is the execution of a quit claim deed, which means, in effect, that the purchaser gets whatever, if any, title there is. And so the state could go forward if it can't ascertain the situation and actually sell the property. Yes, the risk a, a, qu a quit claim deed is a good deal different than the... You, you can't get title insurance on the basis of a quitclaim deed. Well, that's correct, and that's why uh, a person purchasing the property takes all kinds of risks, and this is something, along with many other things, that can be looked into. I would note that, for example, the, the statute, uh, Section 581, has a certification procedure, uh, and in Maine, for example, it's very common for lawyers to write to the uh, armed forces and actually get a determination whether someone is in military service. In many of these situations, the people in question are there locally, uh, and so the issue can be resolved. Uh, so Do we I don't understand you to say that Maine uh, can proceed in personam for the amount of the uh, back, uh, delinquent taxes against the property owner. Yes, that is right. That is a uh, uh, a remedy that's available. It's it's by statute, uh, and it's absolutely clear that they can they can pursue a civil remedy. Now, of course, you're going to have the array of other Soldiers and Sailors Act provisions kicking in, such as the default provisions and so on, but there are uh, these alternative remedies. I would like to, if I could, reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Klonoff. Uh, Mr. Manning, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to begin by, adjusting, uh, by addressing Justice Scalia's question about the bona fide purchaser. The statute contains one provision which explicitly addresses when a bona fide purchaser of land can obtain relief from can, can obtain relief when a, a transaction is affected by the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act. That is provided in Section 520 of the appendix, which deals with default judgments. If a default judgment is entered against a service member, and the service member can show within a specified period subsequent to his military service that the, the, he was prejudiced in his ability to, to uh, defend the suit because of his military service, he can have that judgment vacated. The provision explicitly provides that any property obtained by a bona fide purchaser for value pursuant to that judgment uh, will be protected against 
the vacation of that default judgment by the service member. Now, this illustrates one important point. Two, two important points. First, under Section 525, there is no similar protection. So the right to redeem is told irrespective of any state law that would protect a bona fide purchaser. Second, it shows that the statute is very carefully drafted uh, provision uh, for the protection of service members. As Justice Brandeis stated, writing for the court in the federal government, what might have wanted to protect uh, by federal law uh, a BFP in the one situation and uh, decided not to protect him by federal law in the other, but left it open to the state to protect him. Isn't that a conceivable? Uh, it, 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 is con it is conceivable, Justice Scalia, that that, that that is the case, but it seems to me more likely, given the comprehensiveness of the statutory scheme and the extent to which Congress was careful in specifying which remedies and would, would and would not be available and the desire of Congress to protect the service member from various uh, uh, state law judgments and uh, liabilities during the period of service, it is much more likely that the force of Section 525, which is broad and absolute in its terms, must be taken as preemptive of any state law right to vest the title in a bona fide purchaser. Otherwise, a state could simply, by a variety of state rules, eliminate a pr protection that is broad, that is mandatory, and that is unqualified in its application. Uh, I, along the, the lines of the, the implications of the statute, I'd like to, to um, point out that, as Justice Brandeis said in Ebert versus Poston, this statute was so carefully drafted that very little is left conjecture. And Given the, the Act's disparate inclusion and omission of a prejudice requirement in its various sections, the failure to include a prejudice requirement in Section 525 must be understood as a deliberate policy choice. Congress carefully considered when prejudice should, and more importantly, should not be a factor in awarding relief under the Act. And it, and it obviously decided that in Section 525, it should not be awarded. It should not be a factor in the relief granted. Now, to, to highlight a point that Mr. Klonoff made, I'd like to direct the Court's attention to Section 560 of the appendix. Section 560 specifically addresses... When you say of the appendix, what are, are you referring to the appendix to your brief? No, I apologize, Chief Justice Rehnquist. It's the appendix to Title 50 where the Act is codified. Oh. Um, Section 560 of the appendix to Title... Is that cited anywhere in your brief? It is cited. It's cited and discussed in the text, Your Honor. Um, the appendix to, to Title 50 provides relief from tax sales of certain kinds of property. Now, the property at issue here is not among the classes of property that's covered by the, that provision. It relates to, in terms of real property, it relates to uh, residential, business, professional, and agricultural property owned by the service member at the commencement of service and still owned at the time of the tax sale. If a tax sale is to occur under that... Owned and occupied, no. Owned and occupied by the service member or, or his dependents or employees. Um, if, before a tax sale can occur, a court order must be obtained for that type of property, and the service member or his dependents may get a stay of the tax sale uh, during the period of military service unless the, the service member's ability to pay or his dependent's ability to pay the taxes is not materially affected by the military service. So there is an explicit prejudice requirement 
contained in that provision which supplies relief from the tax sale itself. In the very next provision of Section 560, the Act provides that the period of redemption, the right of redemption, or the right to bring an action for redemption, shall extend throughout the period of the Act and for six months thereafter. It has no mention of material effect of, material, uh, of military service. It has no prejudice requirement in the text of the statute. And that provision, which dates back in its original form to the 1918 legislation, shows that Congress dis intentionally distinguished between the kinds of relief it would be providing for tax forfeitures. And when it got to the point of redemption, it decided to pro provide an absolute protection but extended without regard to prejudice throughout the period of military service. Now, respondents don't claim that the similarly worded language of Section 525 is ambiguous. What they claim is that the, the court should not apply the statute as written because of the practical consequences of allowing a career service member to redeem his property throughout the period of military service without a showing of prejudice. Now, apart from the fact that that practical consequences argument is foreclosed by this court's decision in King versus St. Vincent's Hospital, the statute as written is far from absurd. Um, respondents don't claim that it's absurd to redeem the tolling provision, the, to toll the, the redemption provision for service members in general. What they claim is that it is absurd to do so without a particularized inquiry in each case into whether there has been prejudice. Now, that is, is, is simply not absurd. Congress, because the period of redemption is the last safety valve before pro property is lost irrevocably, it is perfectly rational for Congress to have decided that it would provide service members with the assurance that their property would not be lost forever during their period of military service. By, because of its self-executing nature, Section 525 provides service members with the peace of mind that they will not have to rely on a court's determination in hindsight that this or that tour of duty was or was not prejudicial to their ability to redeem their property. And so what it does is, in effect, it gives the service members an effective right to await their period of military service before exercising their right of redemption. Otherwise, we doubt that many service members would take the risk that a court would, in hindsight, find that they had not been prejudiced by their, their tour of, of military duty. I, I take it the provision which allows for the collection of taxes on real property does not apply to him, though, because he was not occupying it for a That's dollar. right. It was vacant land that he was holding to, to have as a vacation spot. Um, finally, I, I would like to point out that the uncertainties that, res that respondents note and the cloud on tax title that they assert as the absurdity in this case would exist even if there were a prejudice requirement under, a statute, un under the statute. If a service member were entitled to toll his redemption period upon a showing of prejudice, it would be equally difficult, indeed impossible, to tell from the chain of title whether there was a service member in the chain of title and whether the, the service member's particular tour of duty was prejudicial to his ability to redeem. Because the statute is clear, because the structure confirms the statute, and because of the canon requiring liberal construction of a statute for the benefit of service members, 
The judgment of the Supreme Judicial Court of Maine should be reversed. Are there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Manning. Uh, Mr. Cuddy, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Um, at issue here today, as has been discussed, is the statutory foreclosure by the town of Danforth on 170 acres of open land in Maine for unpaid taxes and the subsequent sale of these lots to respondents Anaskoff and Haynes. Uh, as has been stated, the former owner, Mr. Conroy, was in the military service at all pertinent times here, and he had residences in South Portland, Maine, and also in Wisconsin. Uh, the, petition, the petitioner here contends that the status, the uniform status uh, that he enjoyed as a serviceman shields him from his responsibilities to pay taxes because of Section 525. In a timely fashion. In a timely fashion, Your Honor. Yes, thank you. Um, we contend that he uses that status uh, as a sword, really, to unfairly inhibit the town of Danforth from collecting its tax revenue and to unreasonably deprive good-faith purchasers uh, of title in the real estate. We, I think, counsel collectively have done the court a disservice, apparently, because we have not included for you Section 560, as far as I'm concerned, in any readily available forms that you can look at right now. Because I agree with these gentlemen. Section 560 is important. Not having any expertise in this, when this case was brought to me, I looked at 560 because it's the particular section that seems to apply here. And I read it through, and I checked to see, did this fit within the area of someone who owned real property uh, that was occupied for dwelling purposes or professional purposes or business or agriculture? No, it's open land. It doesn't apply. But as these gentlemen called it to my attention, I looked at that subsection 2. That subsection 2 of section 560 indicates that the court must be asked to approve a tax sale if a tax sale takes place under 560 when the court feels that the military service did not, feel, did not materially affect the ability of the military person to pay tax. The court will approve the sale if it feels that the military person's ability to pay tax was, was not materially affected by his military service. Set forth Section 560 in your brief, Mr. Cuddy. I make reference to it, Your Honor. None of us, unfortunately, have reprinted the statute in its entirety in any of our, in any of our briefs or any of our appendices. I would uh, suggest to each of you that if you plan to do that in the future, you should not, uh, you should very definitely set, the, set forth the statute in, in, in your brief. I fully appreciate that, Your Honor, and, and, and I apologize on, on my well, behalf. So what's your conclusion from what you've just said? My conclusion, Your Honor, moving forward uh, from that point, is that this court in the LeMaistre case back in 1948, which in the last 46 years is the only case that dealt with this section, Back in 1948, this court said, with respect to Section 560, 560 and 525 supplement each other. And 560 gives greater protection, greater protection than 525. What the petitioner is suggesting is, in fact, because of his military status as a service person, 525 gives him absolute protection. This court has already gone on record indicating in the Maestri that it is 560, the particular section, that gives the preferred position, the greater protection to the serviceman. Well, when, help, help me with just one thing, though. I don't know whether it's greater or less, but 
560 deals with approval of the sale, right? Whereas 525 deals with redemption. 525 deals with redemption periods. After a sale has taken place. Right. 560 deals with a sale if there is, in fact, uh, a tax deficiency and the mechanics for doing it. And in 560, there's a reference to the remedies from Section 501 to Section 590, which includes 525. But he doesn't challenge the, any, he doesn't say there's any defect in the sale. No, no, he doesn't say there's any defect in the sale. He says that 525 gives him a preferred position because of his... It gives him an unlimited period, a period, a time to redeem as long as he's in service. Yes, Your Honor, right. that's correct. And, and Section 510 of the Act, and, and this is troublesome to me, and maybe I'm missing this. This was enacted in 1918 initially during a time of war. It's reenacted, this statute, in, in 1940, during a time of war. It's interpreted in 1948, just after the war, by this court in Lemaistre. We're now looking at it 48 years later, and it seems to me that the petitioner is saying we should look at it with blinders on. That we should not look at, at Section 510, which is a statement of general purposes. That we should not look at the exigent circumstances referred to in Section 510. That we should not look to the, the uh, prejudice that Section 510 suggests has to exist. We shouldn't look at any of those things. It seems to me that the courts, the lower courts, the courts in Florida, the courts in New Mexico that we well, started... What if this had happened back in 19, uh, uh, 1942 uh, yeah. or 43, you, uh, you, you, you wouldn't be making this argument, I don't suppose. You're right. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and, so we should... Uh, we should say uh, just because Congress is uh, that even though Congress has not changed the law, we should apply it differently. No, I think what you have to say, Your Honor, is in 1942 and 43 and 44 and 45, there was a war. Yes. That's, that's the significant fact. In 1948, in its wisdom, Congress... No, but that isn't what the law says in time of war. It says exigent circumstances, and one has to infer historically what those exigent circumstances were. Well, You're that's, right. That's, that's not just what it a says. recital at the beginning, isn't it, about exigent circumstances? It, that, that, it doesn't say the statute shall be in a force only so long as the exigent circumstances exist. No, it, 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 it doesn't say that clearly. Historically, back in 1940, they had a, a precedent in 1918 that it was only in force as long as the exigent circumstances existed. Here, in 1948, Congress elected to continue it without providing any sort of transition to, to answer or, or address any of these questions. There is no transition for it. it uh, Congress, you want us to do that? I want, I requesting respectfully that you interpret this statute in the context in which it, in which it exists. So the, the protection uh, that <coughs> seemingly is given to uh, the right to redeem uh, just has expired by now. It has expired unless there is prejudice or hardship. And, and where does one find the prejudice and hardship requirement? Well, where do you find the requirement for the, uh, for the hardship? That's the real problem. Congress didn't specify it in this section. I agree with that, Your Honor. You find that requirement in two places. Number one, you find it in the general provisions, Section 510, and the second place that you find that is you find that looking back at what this court did in the Lemaistre versus Leffers case, looking at the juxtaposition. Go, go ahead and finish your answer. Looking at the juxtaposition of Section 560 and 525, looking at the fact that this court indicated back in 1948, 
560 is what provides the better protection for people, not 525. And from that, inferring, because 560 has a hardship requirement well, on that it. basis, you shouldn't have answered that if this had happened in 1943, uh, you wouldn't be making this argument. You would say, well, gee whiz, uh, that other section gives, uh, gives more, the most protection, and so... You, you wouldn't have decided the case in Le Maestri in 1943, Your Honor, unfortunately. But I, I, the reason I answered your question that way was because what I understood you to ask me dealt with the exigent circumstance issue. And, and the exigent circumstances in that context was war. I did not mean to, to, to deal with the hardship. Well, but, but let me just be sure I understand your position. Assume we were in, in, a, in a, a wartime situation. Right would your reliance on 560... Would you make the same argument based on 560? I, I would today make the same argument in terms of a hardship requirement. No, I understand that today. I'm saying would you make that? Would you make the 560 argument in 1943 or during the Korean conflict or during the Vietnam conflict? Would you make that argument in those times? I would make the argument, but I wouldn't have the support that subsequently... You wouldn't get any support from 510. But I don't see, it seems to me they're totally separate arguments. That's my problem with you. The 510 argument seems to me is one, we have special rules during wartime. Your 560 argument is we have a special, uh, that's, that's the statute we should look at rather than 525. And what if we were really in an all-out war right now? Would you, uh, I would think your 560 would still trump uh, this right to uh, redeem. In, in terms, in terms on of, your argument, in terms of hardship, uh, that is my position, Your Honor. But I don't want to leave Justice Stevens' point, if I may. Um, the 510, uh, in, in the last part of it, uh, again, this is the general provisions, uh, talks about uh, that that these provisions are, are made for the temporary suspension of legal proceedings and transactions, which may prejudice the civil rights of persons in such services. Prejudice the civil rights of such person in services. Not alone does 510 talk about exigent circumstances, but it has an overview of the concept of prejudice. Well, it doesn't say temporary suspension of such legal proceedings as will prejudice the rights. It just says a certain category that might prejudice the rights, and this might. I mean, this is a category of temporary suspensions. In this, this category is a category which may prejudice the people who get the benefit of the statute. Right. And, and but it doesn't say he has to prove the prejudice. If, in order to ask the question, I respectfully suggest, in order to say, might it prejudice, might it not prejudice it? In, in the litigation setting, you have to then say, how are we going to determine this? this Somebody's got to ask the this question. This section doesn't define litigation rights. and It just explains why they enacted the statute. The statute was to provide temporary suspensions in a category of cases where servicemen might be prejudiced. Right. And in this category, they might be. But it doesn't say they have to prove prejudice to win in the particular case. That's how that's, you fit that's, 510 with 525. Okay, that's literally true. But I think the next logical step is if, you can, if one concedes that the issue of the possible existence, the maybe of prejudice exists, Either the question's got to be asked affirmatively by the people seeking to get this, this quiet title action, 
or it has to be asked by the, by the other side, but somebody's got to ask the question. Well, no, I don't think so at all. You could say that uh, some people might be prejudiced by not being able to hire a lawyer in time to do this and that, and therefore they can't file a lawsuit right away. Therefore, we'll give them five years to avoid the danger of that prejudice. They get the five years whether they can prove prejudice or not. Okay. In, in, in making the transition then to the redemption issue, whether or not one gets the benefit of redemption or doesn't get the benefit of redemption, you have to make a finding of is this going to provide a hardship or in the alternative, is it sufficient that someone has a status of a military person? What I'm suggesting to you is that Section 510 and Section 560 both, both have an implicit concept of hardship or prejudice. Yeah, but it seems to me it's, it, the fact that, that it's present in 560 demonstrates that its presence in 510 is irrelevant because if its presence in 510 justifies reading it into 525, you wouldn't have had to have it in 560. Not necessarily in five your, your argument is you, we don't need an explicit hardship requirement in 525 because it's in 510 which is up at the beginning of the act and that hardship requirement spills over into all of the act but if that were true there wouldn't be any hardship requirement in 560 you wouldn't need it because it, it would be supplied by 510 but we have it in 560 you have it in 560 because 560 subsection 2 specifically provides for a hearing for a determination of a question Okay. You have it because you have it. Yes. Right. That's true. Moving on from from where I just where I just was in terms of the requirements of the uh, of the statute, um, King versus St. Vincent's Hospital, decided by this court a year ago, has some pertinent language in it. But I would respectfully suggest that the issues in the Veterans Reemployment Rights Act and the issues before this court under the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act are, are, are disparate, different matters. It is true that they relate to servicemen, um, and it is true that they relate to interpretation. After you get beyond that, I, I think that the petitioner's uh, uh, comfort in citing this case is just misplaced. This act that we're dealing with here, the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act, is an act that is uh, germane to itself in terms of its history, its enactment, then its reenactment. Uh, it has, it, it, the Veterans Reemployment Rights Act has nothing to do, directly or indirectly, with the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act. The references, however, in that act to interpreting the statute in the context of the full statute, I think are very germane. And they apply here very strongly because we're not talking about one section in isolation, again with judicial blinders. We're talking about one section in the context of an entire statute and how it affects and interreacts with the entire statute. And again, I reference this court's decision in the Maestri because this court, although it didn't anticipate where we are today, this court back in 1948 did anticipate the tension and dynamic and interrelationship of those two sections and found them to be supportive of one another, not inconsistent or, or uh, mutually exclusive. I would also suggest, and I think I may have mentioned it, but I want to be sure I mention it, the courts that deal with the issue of real estate taking 
of seizing for taxes, they, and, and the cases we've cited on our brief, cases from Florida, cases from New Mexico, they support the proposition that the, the legitimacy of deeding property, the whole concept of the title, the chain of title in property, demands for that process that there be some showing of hardship or prejudice. They talk about career servicemen and, and non-career servicemen, and I think that that's a, another way of saying prejudice or hardship. That's really what they're talking about, because implicitly if one is a career person, one has a, a, a regular income, one is under reasonably stable situations, unless one can demonstrate that there's a hardship. And I think that's where the, the language career comes into play, and it, and it really has its foundation in the concept of hardship. Mr. Cuddy, can, can I ask you to address the, the point the government makes about, uh, about where the burden of this uncertainty should lie and whether it's so absurd uh, to, to place the burden where they say it, it's been placed? Um, it doesn't seem to me absurd to, to say, as, as they claim the statute provides, in 560, the hard, which stays the wholesale, you want to come in and stay the wholesale. Right. Uh, well, the statute says if you want to stay the wholesale, you have to prove the hardship. But if the sale goes forward and all you want to do is have a later right to re redeem, you don't have to prove the hardship because, says the government, what does hardship mean? I mean, you, this, this fellow's in military service. <clears throat> He's fighting a war somewhere or, or giving out food somewhere or doing something and, and can't get home. And his advisor tells him, don't worry. If you can prove hardship, you can always redeem that property. And, and he asks him, well, what does proving hardship consist of? He says, oh, it's a very nice question, uh, proving hardship. Uh, maybe uh, you don't have enough money because you're, you've been shipped uh, overseas and had, you know, had to make all I wouldn't want to have to gamble on the fact that I could prove hardship. So why isn't it perfectly sensible to say, uh, you know, at least for purposes of the redemption provision, uh, we're going to give the serviceman a free ride. He doesn't have to prove the hardship. Because if you were living in Danforth, or for that matter, by Pease Air Force Base or Lorraine Air Force Base in, in Maine, uh, where a lot of people, military people, have property, uh, and for whatever reason they elect not to continue to pay taxes on their property, and the municipalities which derive their revenue and support from that property seize that property and sell it, and you are on their mailing list, and you happen to get a solicitation, come buy some great property in Maine, 150 acres, or 30 or 40 or 50 acres, and you check the title, all you're going to know is that there was a tax sale. And you hire a very competent lawyer, and he or she uh, checks that tax sale and is satisfied that the requirements have been complied with in terms of, of affecting a tax sale. What you have done to the conveyancing is you have raised a significant cloud because of this status. What you have done to the town of Danforth or the town of Limestone or Caribou, Maine, is you have deflated the values of that property because now, based upon potentially this court's interpretation, mm -hmm. there is a great risk here. Well, there, but there's a risk anyway. I mean, it, it's the, you'd still buy the property. Well, you're, you're advising the person who wants to buy the property from the tax sale. Right. Uh, what you're saying is you can give him the great comfort of saying, don't worry, don't worry, no soldier is going to become, be able to come back and snatch this out from under your nose unless he can prove hardship. 
right? Well, even under your theory, uh, you 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 don't have sure ownership. Well, th that's true, and 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 I don't mean to retreat from your implicit question of what is hardship. It is uh, uh, not a clearly defined term. There's no question about that. But then a lot of what you deal with and what I deal with in lesser terms, uh, due process. Uh, uh, no, I'm not talking about it's, it's certainty or uncertainty now. I'm talking right. about the fact that even under your theory, there is no sure conveyancing in a tax sale. You, you, can, never, you can never be sure that there isn't a substantial likelihood that some armed forces member uh, can redeem. That's true, but not simply because they come in and they have a uniform on. If if there is a hardship, right. then then you have a risk. Right. Right. And I guess I guess the, it's a lesser risk, but it's still a pretty substantial one, it seems. That's true, and I don't mean to put uh, rosy glasses on this. A tax sale, by definition, is is a, is a risky business. Indeed. I'm just saying that we are eliminating a risk. What is the interest rate that the redeeming party has to pay on the on the judgment in in Maine? I cannot tell you, Your Honor, um, right off the top of my head. I, I just cannot tell you. And it, it, being our state and with our economy, it but, changes. But the purchaser with the quick claim deed at least gets his money back plus interest. Yes. Whatever the rate might be. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I would, and I appreciate you mentioning that because you bring one more point that I want to make sure I state to you, ladies and gentlemen. The, this is a quiet title action. But one aspect of this case is also a trespass action. Now, that is not before you, but I simply want to highlight that because depending on what you do, and I'm hopeful that you simply affirm what happened below, but should you not, and should you decide to go in a different direction, there is another loose end to this case um, that, that the issue that we're dealing with today will not, will not finally dispose of. I have concluded those points that I wish to make, and unless you have any further questions. Do, do you agree that Maine could uh, sue the... Uh, Petitioner personally for the for the amount. I, I believe the town could, Your Honor. I'm not sure that the, the, the state that could. the town could. I believe the town could in a in a civil in a civil action. It assumes a lot, but yes, I believe the town could. Thank you, Mr. Cuddy. Thank you, uh, Mr. Klonoff. You have three minutes remaining. Unless this court has any questions, I would sub simply submit that the judgment of the Supreme Judicial Court of Maine should be reversed. Thank you. Very well. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.